This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is the mysterious life of the world's best-selling novelist and the queen of crime. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to another month of Storical. First order of business. If you are a subscriber to the podcast, you already know this, but if you haven't hit subscribe yet and instead you've been seeing info about new episodes either on email or social media, well, guess what? Surprise for you. You now get weekly episodes of Storical. Basically, I got the feedback that more frequent episodes would be appreciated. And because the long monthly episodes are so labor-intensive to write and produce, I decided that I would do shorter episodes, so we're talking like five minutes or less every week. The format I used last month was first Monday, you got your regularly scheduled 40-something minute episode about Frida Kahlo. Then each Monday for the rest of the month, I did my new segment called Storical Footnotes. Cute, right? I thought you might appreciate that. Anyway, the footnotes are continuations of the long episode, Interesting stories and asides that we don't necessarily have time for in those regular episodes. So long story short, subscribe to Storical on your podcast player to get new episodes delivered straight to you every Monday, or every Monday you can go to immortalperfumes.com backslash storical. And as always, you can find links to everything I talk about in the show notes. Okay, business concluded. Onward to Storical's September subject, Agatha Christie. September is the beginning of the fall season which to me is synonymous with spookiness. So I thought, who better than one of the world's greatest mystery writers? I personally remember when I was growing up and we'd visit my grandma's house in New York, she always had an Agatha Christie novel bookmarked on a side table. That's how I was first exposed to classics like Murder on the Orient Express, and then there were none. I also remember seeing a performance of The Mousetrap when I was in school. And another time we went to one of those murder mystery dinner things and it was the plot from one of her novels. But apart from these experiences, I hadn't read much of her work, nor did I know much about her. And that changed a few years ago because I had a really bad anxiety issue, and I started to listen to her books on audio, and I found enormous comfort and relief. And keep that idea in mind, because we're actually going to talk about that later in this episode. Remember, today I'm going to give you the big Agatha Christie download, then tune in the next three Mondays for some mini episodes about the Queen of Crime. For now, though, imagine yourself on an idyllic villa in a seaside town in turn-of-the-century England, where a quiet, lonely child reads and imagines herself in other places. Chapter 1. A is for Agatha. When you conjure up an image in your mind of Agatha Christie, you probably think of a little old English lady, which makes sense. She was considerably older at the height of her fame, as her novels increasingly were adapted for film and TV. But let me go ahead and blow your mind for a second. One, her dad was American, and two, she wasn't always old. That's right. Shocking. I know. To piece together the mystery of her life, it's best to start at the beginning with her parents. Agatha's father's name was Frederick Alva Miller, and he's listed in some sources as a stockbroker. But honestly, he inherited quite a pretty fortune and was what they called at the time a man of leisure. He was born and bred in New York, but attended a Swiss prep school. 
He presented as more European than the average American man of the time, but his New York heritage and mannerisms were a stark contrast to the Victorian England in which he met his future wife, Clara. Okay, Agatha's mother, Clara. This is quite the tale. I think so far in most of the episodes I've done, it's been the father that the subject is closer to and who has shaped most more of their life. But in Agatha's case, it was all Clara all the time. Clara was the daughter of an officer and the only girl in a brood of five children. Clara's parents were young and beautiful and not very well off. When Clara's father died after falling from his horse while he was stationed in Jersey, which is not New Jersey, it's one of the Channel Islands near the coast of Normandy. Once Clara's father died, her mother was left with five children and no money. Her elder sister, however, had married a wealthy American man named Nathaniel Frary Miller. And if you're like, hmm, another Miller. Well, this is the key to how Agatha's parents met. Clara was sent to live with her aunt and her American husband when she was nine years old. This is a key point of interest that would shape Agatha's life for several reasons. One, Clara felt abandoned by her mother. She couldn't understand why she couldn't continue to live with her mother. Her mother felt that her boys would be able to make it on their own, but she wanted her daughter to have a good life, so she sent her away. For Clara, however, that was a profound point of grief and abandonment and really informed how she would later mother her own children, particularly Agatha. The second point of interest here is that Clara's future husband, Frederick, was the son of Nathaniel Miller from his first marriage. So if that sounds confusing, basically Clara's uncle, who is not a blood relation, Frederick was his son from his first marriage. So not blood cousins, but they kind of grew up as cousins. Frederick was one of those guys who was very good-humored, well-liked, and knew literally everyone. He was friends with one of Winston Churchill's relatives, for example. He would occasionally travel from New York to visit his father, stepmother, and pseudo-cousin Clara. Now that I think about it, it's kind of like Richie and Margot in the Royal Tenenbaums. Anyway, as they got older, Frederick began paying Clara interest, which was shocking to her because here's this fairly good-looking, cool guy who's got lots of friends and money, and she actually refused his first marriage proposal because she thought she wasn't good enough for him, which I'm... Glad she got over that. No one should ever feel that way. It was a love match, which is exciting because it seems like a lot of these historical couples were more marriages of convenience. So yay for Agatha Christie's parents actually loving each other. They were married in 1878, and with his money, they both lived like socialites. They had a long honeymoon in Switzerland. Then they went to Torquay, which was a seaside resort town where lots of wealthy people lived. Their first child, Madge, was born in 1879. Then their son, Monty, was born in 1880, while they were back visiting America. Clara took the children back to England, while Frederick stayed behind to look after investments. This was kind of a pattern for them in which they'd live apart for long stretches of time, but the arrangement didn't seem to be a problem, and neither of them were upset or unfaithful. She was tasked with finding them a place to live, and after looking at 35 houses, used her 2,000-pound inheritance left to her by Frederick's father and bought Ashfield, a manor house in Torquay that was Agatha's childhood home. Frederick spent a lot of his time at the Gentleman's Club and literally just out strolling the streets buying stuff. He had investments and properties, but he really just lived that gentleman-do-nothing lifestyle. This spending habit would later be a serious issue. Clara, for her part, adapted quite nicely to the life of a socialite. She had always felt she was better than the lower class she was born into and spent her time attending parties and searching for something that would give her purpose. She dabbled in art and embroidery, but didn't find herself good at either. 
Interestingly, Clara also considered herself somewhat psychic, and at that time, spiritualism was all the rage, so everyone in her family believed this as well. Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller wasn't born until a full 10 years after her older brother. She was born September 15, 1890, and was the absolute apple of Clara's eye. Madge and Monty were packed up and sent to boarding school, so it was just Agatha and her parents, as well as Nursie, Agatha's nanny. So, dear listeners, this is where we set our scene. A loving father who was both a gentleman of leisure and a spendthrift, two absent, much older siblings, and a doting mother who hadn't quite found a purpose. Chapter 2. Growing Up at Styles. With her siblings so much older and far away, Agatha grew up as though she were an only child. Her mother had also come to view education negatively and decided that Agatha should be homeschooled. And no one's sure where she got this idea, but she also believed that Agatha shouldn't be taught to read until she was eight years old. Imagine being a little kid in a rich people seaside town with no friends or siblings around with no one for company but your parents, nurse, and pets. Sounds like it might get a little boring. But for Agatha, this loose upbringing really activated her imagination. Little Agatha wound up learning to read on her own and making up elaborate stories and fantasy games. Interestingly, for this time period, Clara also actually spent time and played with Agatha. Like we're talking rolled in the grass, played dress up, and did the voices and stories type of play. For a woman of Clara's social class, that was pretty unheard of. Every afternoon at 3 p.m., she'd play with her daughter and tell Agatha fairy stories that she made up on the spot. Clara and Frederick personally taught her subjects such as literature, writing, and math. Apparently, Agatha was really good at math and loved it, which way to beat the odds and be a good writer and also good at math. They regularly gave her lessons on the piano, and she was accomplished enough that she even considered being a concert pianist. But ultimately, Agatha, at least in her early years, she was an introvert. The idea of performing on stage was far too nerve-wracking. So while she continued to play, she ultimately gave up on that dream. Things remained pretty calm and serene until 1896 when Frederick's spending habits and bad investments started to catch up with him. At the time, and this was something that F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald would do as well, but France was considered the place to go when you needed to economize and live cheaply. So Frederick packed up Clara, Agatha, and Nursie and moved the family to France where they traveled around living in various hotels. Living in a hotel is a lot more cost-effective than running a house like, say, Downton Abbey. I think that was even a plot point in Downton Abbey. Anyway, this helped to alleviate some of their money troubles, but for the first time in his life, Frederick feared that he'd have to, ah, shock, horror, get a job. He didn't, though. His heart probably wouldn't have even been able to handle it by, by this point anyway, and it just became a cloud over his head. This obviously took a toll on Frederick's health. In the last year of his life, he had a list of heart attacks that he would write down. The man had 30 heart attacks in a four-month period. Agatha was aware that her father was sick, but maybe didn't realize how dire it truly was. When Frederick died in November of 1901, Agatha was just 11 years old. She later said that her childhood had died with her father. With Frederick gone and not much money to their name, the family that had once enjoyed the pleasures of living an upper middle-class life now found themselves in financial ruin. Frederick had been the love of Clara's life, and despite the hardship, she didn't resent his mismanagement of their money. 
but with him gone and her other children grown or in school, she focused all of her love, devotion, and attention on little Agatha. The two of them were inseparable, and it honestly sounds like a non-abusive mommy dearest situation. Maybe unhealthy and too clingy, but not bad by any means. Agatha's daughter, Rosaline, later said that her grandmother was dangerous because her mother never thought she was wrong. While Agatha had loved her father, her mother was really her whole world. So she acclimated to this change in circumstances fairly well, although the strain of their financial duress would cloud her judgment and sense of security over the next few years. Even though they absolutely could not afford to keep Ashfield, Agatha begged her mother not to sell it, and Clara complied. They stayed at the house, but systematically had to sell off their possessions and let go of servants and staff. The house became shabby and a shadow of its former self. Living in a house of memories was agonizing for Clara, but comforting for Agatha. Around this time, Agatha began to write more. She had little poems published in the local newspaper, but her older sister Madge, who had recently been married, had had several pieces published by none other than Vanity Fair. At the time, the family thought it was Madge who would be the famous writer amongst them. She certainly seemed to have the greater talent. This slight sibling rivalry was motivating for Agatha. Her mother encouraged her writerly pursuits, as had her father before he died. With such a loose upbringing and no real structure, writing down the stories of her imagination was oddly grounding for the child. That, coupled with a fear about losing money, led Agatha to pursue writing as an occupation. She didn't want to end up like Clara with everything contingent upon a husband. However, despite the fact that she had grown up in a matriarchal household and saw firsthand what the death of a spouse could do to a woman of that time's financial security, Agatha soon became obsessed with the idea of getting married. Chapter 3, Chemistry. I want to go back for a second to this idea of little old lady Agatha Christie. Most author photos of her are from her later years, but when she was a young thing, she was quite pretty. She loved dancing and began attending her fair share of parties and dances over the next few years. She also started to roll with a group of popular girls in Torquay and would go to tea, go swimming, and also roller skating, which was all the rage at the time. In short, despite her father's death and financial circumstances, Agatha still led a pretty charmed life. Her elder sister Madge was married, and so Agatha and Clara would spend holidays with Madge and her husband's wealthy family. Agatha was finally sent for a bit of schooling in Paris, where she ultimately stayed for several years. She had a rough time initially because she was so used to doing everything with her mother. To not have her around was depressing, but Agatha seemed to be really into living her best life, and she got over it quickly. And she also enjoyed going to the opera, and she made some new American friends. Remember how I said she wanted to be a concert pianist? Well, apparently she also had aspirations to be an opera singer but was kind of harshly told by an acquaintance that she didn't have what it takes, and this was while she was living in Paris. With her second artistic dream scrapped, Agatha set to work figuring out a medium that she both enjoyed and was good enough at that she might have a career. She also began to think more seriously on having a husband, as Madge had done. Financial security was on her mind so that she could continue living the life to which she had grown accustomed. She began writing more seriously, mostly short stories at this point. This was an activity that had long been encouraged for both sisters, and she had that sibling rivalry going with Madge, who had mostly given up writing when she got married. When Agatha was ready to make her debut, Clara didn't have the money to front a season in London, so they went to Cairo instead. 
And if you're like, what, how did we go from London to Cairo? At this time, Egypt was this exotic land that was cheap, but still fashionable. Clara's health wasn't great either. And it was thought that the desert air would be good for her recovery. This was still several years before King Tut's tomb was discovered. And there were a lot of Brits from the peerage financing digs in Egypt, including Lord Carnavan, who owned the estate where they filmed Downton Abbey. He was one of the financiers of Tut's discovery. That was a tangent, I'm sorry, but I have a book recommendation, so I'll put that in the show notes too. And then something to keep in your pocket about her time in Cairo, Agatha was pretty ambivalent about it. Like, she was super into going to parties and keeping her dance card filled, but didn't care much about the city or what was going on there. And this is in stark contrast to her later life, so remember that. Anyway, while there, she wrote her first novel, Snow Upon the Desert. She couldn't get it published, though, and Clara arranged to have their neighbor, who was a published writer, read the book. He agreed that it wasn't of publishable quality, but he was nice and constructive in his criticism. He said that Agatha had a talent for dialogue, but that she should probably write something else. So she did. Now, in Cairo, Little Miss Popular received two offers of marriage. She rejected them both, and in 1912, she met Archie Christie back home in Devon. Okay, so picture it. She's supposed to go to this dance with an officer she had flirted with a bit. He gets sick, but he's like, hey, I have another friend who's going. I'll have him hang out with you at the party. He'll show you a good time. Tall, dark, and handsome aviator literally showed up to the party on a motorbike. He walks up to her. She, who has a full dance card because she's pretty and popular and a darling among all the young men. And he asks her for three dances. I mean, of course she said yes. That's like every girl's fantasy. So they dance, and then he asks for three more. Now, Agatha was a rule follower, so the fact that she agreed shows how smitten she must have been with this guy. This was Archie Christie. They had an intense courtship where they did all these activities together, concerts, tea, and the like. But Clara was not at all impressed or amused by this. Remember, her dad was an officer, and she wanted Agatha to make a wealthier match so that they both would gain some security. Agatha was also engaged to another man, one who, to Clara, was a much more secure prospect. Now, again, Archie was super hot and also super intense. He was getting shipped off to fight in France in World War I, and he was justifiably freaked out. He convinced Agatha to break off her engagement and marry him instead. They had a rushed marriage on Christmas Eve of 1914 while he was home on leave. So that is how Agatha got her famous last name. But the war wasn't done with Agatha yet. Like many women of her age and station at the time, she volunteered as a nurse to help the war effort. After Archie went to France, she worked in the hospital in Turkey and took an exam to qualify to become an apothecary's assistant. She, of course, passed and was then allowed to work in the dispensary of the hospital. Back in the day, the pharmacists, or apothecaries as they were called, made all the drugs by hand. So you needed to have your math down, which as we learned, Agatha was into. You had to have the correct dosages so that you wouldn't kill anyone. It was here that Agatha got her education in poisons, how they work, what dosages of something could cause harm. It was all of these experiences churning around in her mind that led her to her first literary success. Chapter four, Queen of Crime. Agatha's writing success all started with a bet from Madge. 
Her elder sister bet that she couldn't write a good detective story. Ever one for a challenge, particularly when it came to showing up her sister, Agatha began writing a new novel around 1916. The book was called The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and not only was it Agatha's first published novel, it was also the grand debut of Agatha's most beloved and enduring character, Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. When she initially wrote the story, Archie was impressed and encouraged her to seek out publication. After the war, the pair found a flat in London, and Agatha settled into a bit of homemaking, interior decorating being a passion and a joy for her. But her former income from her father's estate, roughly 100 pounds a year, that was reverted back to her mother upon her marriage. Archie didn't have much money as an officer, so she was still very much determined to make a career of her writing. But it fell by the wayside for a little bit as she prepared for the birth of her daughter, Rosalind, in 1919. The Mysterious Affair at Styles took her a while to write, and then, after multiple rejections, it was finally accepted by a publisher almost a year and a half after she had submitted the story. The acceptance came just weeks after Rosalind's birth. The publisher, John Lane of The Bodley Head, kind of preyed on Agatha a bit. He insisted on some big revisions to the story, including the ending, and basically gaslit Agatha into being super grateful for the opportunity at not only being published, but also being signed to a five-book deal. The terms were atrocious, however, with an abysmal royalty rate that only took effect after the sale of 2,000 copies of her book. Nevertheless, Agatha's writing career was on as both Styles and Poirot were a massive hit. With her contract in place, she kept writing and actually created her other wildly popular characters, Miss Marple and Tommy and Tuppence, and she created them pretty much all at the same time. Pretty incredible that three such iconic characters could just be pulled from thin air like that. Rightfully so, Agatha was super into the idea of using her money to buy what she wanted. Over the course of the next few books, she bought herself a house, furniture for the house, and her pride and joy, a high-end car called a Morris Cowley. Archie was happy with the money, but definitely graded by his wife's success. He had since quit the military to be a stockbroker and made a decent fortune for himself in later life. He was also very emotional and demanding, and Agatha found it hard to please him. In 1924, he was offered the opportunity to travel around the world to various parts of the British Empire to promote the new British Empire exhibition. Agatha left Rosalind at Ashfield with Clara and traveled with Archie. Agatha had a lifelong affinity for travel, often gaining new ideas for characters and settings on her trips. They were gone for over a year. But probably my favorite and most random Agatha Christie fact comes from this trip. Agatha learned to surf, and she was really into it. So into it, in fact, that she's actually credited as the very first British woman to stand up on a surfboard. And, dear listeners, there are pictures. So make sure to check the show notes because you know I'm going to have to give you the links to Agatha Surfing. She said of surfing, and this is so British, I love it, it was occasionally painful as you took a nosedive down into the sand, but on the whole, it was an easy sport and great fun. So there you go, Agatha Christie Surfing Safari. Anyway, back to writing. She kept churning out the books, and a hungry public kept eating them up. She was massively popular, but the exploitative nature of her contract really grated on her. She began to feel like she didn't have control over her art and was being treated as a machine solely to churn out stories. In a shrewd move, once she was established as a popular writer, she sought out an agent to better negotiate her terms. 
Her agent helped her secure a deal with a new publishing house called William Collins and Sons, which is now just a little publishing house known as Harper Collins. Also kind of funny is that her sibling rivalry with Madge was still going strong. Her sister wrote a pretty successful play, and it didn't matter that Agatha was a beloved novelist. She was very concerned that Madge would get a movie deal before her. So petty, so human. I love it. It's so interesting to look at Agatha's interviews concerning writing, as well as what she wrote about her job as a writer in her autobiography. She actually echoes things that Stephen King has said as well, and other debates when it comes to literary fiction versus genre writing. She didn't consider herself a real writer because of her subject matter and the fact that she really wrote for money and made no illusions about that. What's also interesting about that is that she kind of presented herself as this amateur writer, like, look, I'm a sweet old lady with a writing hobby. But really, she spent most of her time writing. It was an integral part of her daily practice. Anyway, long aside, but she started making better money with Collins, but that didn't help her personal woes. Frustration and discontent plagued her, and in 1926, things boiled over the edge. Chapter 5 the mysterious disappearance of Agatha Christie. Agatha knew it would happen one day, but in 1926, her world came crashing down when her beloved mother Clara died. Agatha had recently visited her mother, who was recovering from bronchitis. Clara reassured Agatha that she was fine, but years of ill health caught up with her, and Clara died in April of 1926, while Agatha was on a train to visit her again, no less. To say that Agatha was shattered is an understatement. Her mother had been her best friend, companion, and confidant. Without her, she felt lost. Archie, for his part, had long been jealous of Agatha's relationship with her mother, wanting Agatha's attention solely to himself. Agatha's despair over her mother's death made him more resentful. Archie had been on a business trip to Spain, leaving Agatha to feel horribly alone, facing grief with no one but her small child. When he did return, he offered to let her travel back to Spain with him, but she refused and instead took Rosalind to Ashfield in Torquay so she could begin the painful process of sorting through Clara's possessions. The two remained through the summer, and when Archie arrived in early August, right before Rosalind turned seven years old, he had a bombshell to reveal. In the course of Agatha's extended stay in Torquay as she grieved for her mother, Archie had taken up with Nancy Neal, the secretary of the Christie's friend. At first, Agatha wasn't too disturbed by this, as she had been afraid he was up to something truly horrible. But Archie pressed on and told her he was in love with Neil and wanted a divorce. Agatha was dumbstruck. The two had had problems in their marriage for a while. Archie, for instance, hadn't wanted a baby and was resentful of both her relationship with her mother as well as her career success. He also seemed to have it in his mind that Agatha wouldn't care to lose him. She had an incredibly successful career after all but the rejection was more than she could bear. They agreed to carry on as normal so as not to spoil Rosalind's birthday. Agatha then convinced him to stay on for at least three more months to try to work things out. During this time, they went on holiday together, but Archie remained withdrawn and her grief was still very much apparent. Which, this poor woman having to walk on eggshells after her mom died, this guy. While he remained true to his word that he'd stay with Agatha and Rosalind for at least three months, he frequently stayed at the Gentlemen's Club or went to mutual friends' houses for the weekends where he would meet up with Nancy. It all came to a head on Friday, December 3rd, 1926. 
After waiting hours for Archie to return for a weekend getaway to Yorkshire, he still had not returned as she finished up her dinner. She put her daughter to bed and went upstairs to write three letters. One letter to her secretary, one to her brother-in-law, and one to Archie. She then grabbed a small briefcase and made her way down to her car, the Morris Cowley. After driving away, Agatha disappeared for 11 days. The next day, her car was found abandoned in the woods along with her winter coat. This was particularly unnerving because it was found near what was called the silent pool, a spring of water where people frequently drowned. But no body was found. Had the great writer committed suicide? It didn't seem likely. Her latest book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, was selling well for her new publishers at Collins. According to the letter received by her brother-in-law and her secretary, Agatha was just going to a spa in Yorkshire to recuperate. But the third letter, Archie refused to hand over to the police. To this day, no one knows what it said. One of the largest manhunts in British history took place. Agatha Christie hysteria took over the public and the tabloids, with people speculating wildly on what could have happened to her. Some believed it was the husband. Others said suicide. Still others called a hoax or publicity stunt. Spiritualists and other detective writers got involved in the case, and more on this in the upcoming episodes of Historical Footnotes. The case had all the trappings of one of Agatha's own mysteries. But here, things get even stranger. After 11 days, Agatha was indeed found at a spa in Yorkshire, but she had checked into her hotel under the name Nancy Neal. When Archie showed up to get her, she didn't remember who he was and didn't recognize her own name or photographs. Impressively, when he first came to the hotel, she made him wait 15 minutes before she deigned to see him as she changed into an evening gown. Because of the claim of amnesia and the fact that she was found safe, the police had nothing to go on and closed the case. But after that, Agatha was the subject of vitriol as it was decided by the media and the public that this had all been a publicity stunt. Agatha never spoke of her disappearance in any of her interviews and glossed over it in her autobiography. Her relatives have also remained silent on the matter and said she never told anyone what actually happened to her those 11 days in December. I personally subscribe to the theory that she was just trying to get back at Archie and make him look bad. Checking into the hotel under his mistress's name was a very nice touch. But truthfully, no one knows what happened. If it was a ploy to save her marriage, it didn't work. And the Christie's divorced in 1928. Chapter 6. The Second Life of Agatha Christie. Divorce is always an expensive prospect. And now a newly single mother, after ensuring she got to keep the surname of Christie for her books, Agatha found herself working in overdrive to make ends meet. She wrote at a furious pace but found no joy in it. She even created a second pen name, Mary Westmacott, under which she would write six romance novels, with no one having any clue it was her until an American journalist outed her in the 1940s. In 1928, she wrote under the Westmacott name about a composer who had to compose solely for money. Poor thing. Rosalind was off at boarding school, so Agatha just kind of pushed through her loneliness and grief with writing. One night, upon attending a dinner party, a couple discussed a recent trip to Baghdad and told her what a great time they had. Apparently, it had long been a dream of Agatha's to travel on the Orient Express. So she's divorced, daughter's at school, she's not really feeling great. Why not? Let's go to Baghdad. She booked the trip and set off, and it turned out to be rejuvenating for her. 
While she hadn't shown much interest in archaeology when she was in Cairo during her debutante season, she acquainted herself with the Woolley family, who were in charge of a dig in Baghdad. She went to dinner parties with them and had such a great time, she was invited to come back the next summer. In 1930, Agatha returned to Baghdad and met up with the Woolies. This time, they asked a 25-year-old archaeologist in training named Max Malawan to take Agatha around and basically do touristy things at these dig sites. Agatha was 40 years old and ready to get back to life. Max was impressed to find the famed British novelist did not mind getting a bit dirty. She was keen to travel and do things off the beaten path. He also took it upon himself to read all of her books so that he could engage her in conversation, which, aw, so sweet. Anyway, after about six months of hanging out and then letters back and forth when she went back to England, Max proposed and they got married, which, yay, Agatha. After all that heartache, she ended up with an interesting and devoted younger man. Once married, the pair traveled extensively. Agatha continued writing as she helped Max on his archaeological digs. She kept writing books, including Murder on the Orient Express, The ABC Murders, and Death on the Nile. But she also started getting more involved in the theater and writing plays. She had many tax issues stemming from the wild amounts of money she was making, thanks to her prodigious output. After almost going through bankruptcy, thanks to a snafu with the IRS, she decided she would only, only write one book a year, which I need to get my life together. She makes it seem so easy. When the Second World War broke out, Agatha went back to work in an apothecary and spent more time learning about poisons, one of her trademark features of many of the murders she wrote about. And one kind of funny factoid about that, Agatha really knew what she was talking about when it came to poisons and did such a good job describing the various symptoms that they could inflict. A nurse who had read Christie's book, The Pale Horse, was able to save a dying toddler from phthalic poisoning she had contracted from pesticides used around her house. In 1944, Rosalind's husband died, which left her a single mother to her son, Max. Agatha was stricken with grief for her daughter, but was a loving grandmother and helped out as much as she could. She even signed over the rights to the mousetrap to her grandson, who is still alive, by the way. And the mousetrap is the longest running play in history because it's literally still going, and it started in 1952. So Max sounds like he got a pretty good deal there. Agatha and her husband, Max, had a happy relationship and lived out the rest of their lives traveling and working together. Weirdly, Max was knighted three years before Agatha for his contributions to archaeology, so she became a dame, but then she was knighted a dame in her own right at age 81 in 1971. Her health wasn't the best the last few years of her life, which we will get into in a future episode of Historical Footnotes, but the queen of crime ultimately died in 1976 at the age of 85. Remember how I said she's the best-selling novelist of all time? I meant that. Only Shakespeare and the Bible have outsold her when it comes to writing. Not even J.K. Rowling is there. Some more stats about the good dame. She wrote 66 detective novels, 14 short story collections, and about 10 plays. More than 2 billion copies of her books have been sold to date, and she has been translated into more than 44 languages. For reference, J.K. Rowling has sold 500 million. Chapter 7, After the Funeral. Poirot was Agatha's most popular character and appeared in at least 47 of her books. She herself hated Poirot, even calling him a creep, but she believed in giving people what they wanted, so she continued writing about him. Interestingly, she wrote the death scenes for both Poirot and Miss Marple decades before she actually killed them off in her books. 
With so many novels and stories to her credit, there's a plethora of all things Agatha for you, but surprisingly, not much told from her point of view. I only managed to find one book told from Agatha's point of view, and it's pretty recent, only came out in the last two years. The book is called A Talent for Murder, and it takes place during Agatha's real-life disappearance. Basically, a bad guy blackmails Agatha to kill someone for him, knowing that as a murder mystery writer, she's most likely to get away with it. This book was really fun, and if you're an Agatha Christie fan, I think you'll really enjoy it because the author, Andrew Wilson, really gets her voice right. It's a wonderful homage. I'm giving this book away, so if you'd like to enter that, just go to the show notes at immortalperfumes.com backslash historical to enter. For nonfiction books, the biography I relied on most for this episode was Agatha Christie, A Mysterious Life by Laura Thompson. It's exhaustive and well-written. My only complaint was that the author didn't write linearly. It was separated into sections like husband, second husband, etc. And so it just kind of felt all over the place to me, and it was hard to keep track of when things happened to her. It's a great read. I just didn't care for the structure. One that is so fun that you absolutely must read is called A is for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie by Catherine Harkup. The glorious Art Deco cover first grabbed my attention, and then I started reading it, and it's just fascinating. This book talks about the poisons that Agatha used in her most famous books that featured this method of murder. It talks about how Agatha knew about each one, the history of the poison, and what she got right and wrong. This one I got from the library, and I would definitely buy it. Agatha wrote an autobiography, so you can actually hear from her yourself. Just be warned that she glossed over and downplayed a lot of things. Then there's a movie adaptation about Agatha's disappearance starring Vanessa Redgrave and Dustin Hoffman. I didn't have time to watch it, and I also read that Rosalind was not happy about the film. So it exists if you're interested, but I don't know much about it otherwise. In terms of movies and TV based on her novels, there's a ton. There are at least two new series I saw on Amazon Prime streaming alone. My best recommendation is to get the films from your library or from whatever streaming service you use. David Suchet is probably my favorite Poirot, although I have to say I love Kenneth Branagh, so I'm happy to see him revisiting the character. I'll also mention that Agatha hated all the adaptations of her books that were made into TV and movies during her lifetime. And her main complaint was that, and this is from her estate's website, The mustaches weren't luxurious enough. I mean, as an author, it must be terrible to see people mangle your characters, but I just love that she was so concerned about the mustache. There's also a Doctor Who episode from when David Tennant was the doctor, and it takes place at a dinner party the same day that Agatha is set to disappear. Agatha is a guest at this party, and then other guests mysteriously start dying. I won't say any more, but David Tennant is the best, so you must watch the clip in the show notes. In terms of which Agatha Christie books you should read, my personal favorites aren't exactly shocking. Murder on the Orient Express and And Then There Were None have always been my personal favorites, but I did listen to a podcast in which the host was a super fan. It's called Red or Dead, and I really enjoyed listening to this one. This is a podcast specifically about mystery and thriller books. They make lots of book recommendations, both old and new, so if that's your jam, you should definitely check it out. The Agatha Christie episode is number 38, and like I said, the host is a super fan, so I definitely take her advice on where to start if you're trying to crack into Christie's books. I'll also say that the Dan Stevens narrated, and then there were none, was superb. 
He's Matthew Crawley from Downton Abbey, and good lord, did he do the voices. It was great. I was a bit horrified to learn the original racist title of And Then There Were None. I'm not going to say it here, but you can look it up if you're interested. There were several other really great podcast episodes I listened to while researching this episode. I discovered a podcast called The Anglophiles, which is delightful. The two hosts talk about all things British, and every episode they try a different English candy. One of the hosts is also another huge Christie fan, and I personally love people who passionately have a favorite author, so it was a joy to listen to. Episode 82 of The Illusionist, titled A Novel Remedy, was another fascinating podcast episode. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned listening to Agatha Christie audiobooks when I had really bad anxiety. In this episode of The Illusionist, the host talks to therapists about how reading and listening to novels can help comfort people who are suffering from depression, anxiety, grief, the list goes on. They also talked about why Agatha Christie books specifically have been helping people cope with illness since she began writing them. This is an absolutely fascinating listen, and overall, I recommend this podcast if you love language. And when I had my issue, I listened to a BBC-produced rendition of Murder on the Orient Express, And it was oddly calming because it just gives your brain something else to focus on. So highly recommend that technique. Then if you're looking for more listening about Agatha's life, I also listened to two reliable history podcasts, Stuff You Missed in History Class and The History Chicks. I'll put links up to both episodes, but they're both more deep dives of her life if you want more about her. Well, that's all for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed our first foray into our beloved murder queen, Don't forget to leave a review and enter the giveaway for A Talent for Murder. Tune in the next three Mondays for historical footnotes, which will feature mini episodes about some of the stuff we didn't have time to cover today. And join me again next month as we discuss the eerie tale of the life of a magician among the spirits. Mm -hmm.